Once again, if you turn your Bibles back to Acts chapter 17, let's get caught up with where we were uh, several weeks ago. Paul has gone to the city of Athens. He has essentially fled there because of persecution and a variety of uh, different issues that came up. And he's waiting now for two of his co-workers, uh, for Silas and Timothy, to come. And in the process of waiting, he has come into the city. And what has he found? He's found a city that historically has been one of the great cities in all of history. Athens was the hub, the center of the world, so to speak, for a period of time. It was a place where culture had developed and uh, a language spread from there that essentially became the language of the New Testament, uh, a, a common language that was spoken by many, many people, not only in, in Greece, but also in a variety of different places around the world. But by this time, the city had begun to decline. And it was declining in such a way that... Um, the Bible gives it kind of a, a recognition that is, uh, I wouldn't want this said about my city, that the only thing we do is we want to hear new stories and we want to consider new philosophies. Well, Athens had become known as a, a center of philosophical thought and Paul enters at, at this particular time. There, there were Jews in the city which gave him a degree of comfort because it was his practice to go into the synagogue and to teach there. And that's exactly what he did here in Athens. He would go to the synagogue, he would open up the Word of God there, and he would preach, as the Bible tells us, Jesus and the resurrection. And that focal point of his ministry, I believe, still remains a focal point of our ministry today, that we preach Jesus and we preach the resurrection and in just a short time, we're going to find out why that is so important. This city not only had that synagogue where Paul was proclaiming truth, but it also had a very large pagan population. Uh, they were idol worshipers. They were people who had established with their own hands the gods that they had worshipped. And I would say even more uh, dangerously, they produced in their own realm of thinking gods of their own making. Gods that were not real, but gods to whom they gave form by taking silver and gold and stone and wood and carving and chipping and, and molding into patterns of the gods that they wanted to fall before and to worship. And as a result of that, this paganism was, was rampant in the city. There were the philosophers, the Epicureans, whose primary purpose in life was to escape pain. They did not want to experience bad things. And, and you know what? There are Epicureans today. I hear people talk about this, that they never want to think about anything negative. And there are some preachers who are catering to that philosophy where they never want to say anything negative. They never want to talk about sin. They never want to address the issues that are of the greatest importance to those of us who are dead in trespasses and sins, who can only find life in the person of Christ. So... Epicureanism hasn't faded away. It, it is still rampant, and it's in this country uh, in, in pretty significant measure. Their belief was that when you died, not only did your body disintegrate, but your spirit did as well, so that there would be no eternal uh, consciousness. There would be no awareness of anything after the death of the body. That was it. And you all know that that's what many people believe today. So there's nothing new under the sun. 
There were also the Stoics who didn't try to avoid pain, but they tried to embrace a philosophy that said, pain will not affect the way I behave, nor will pleasure. And so they wanted to become indifferent to the issues of life that would bring pain on one hand or pleasure on the other. And we still talk about people being stoic, their responses that ought to bring some kind of an emotional um, demonstration, oftentimes mount to nothing, and then we'll say something like this. Well, that person had a very stoic response. So we're familiar with that. We, we understand what that's all about. In this environment, the Apostle Paul came, and he was invited by those who were the philosophers and the thinkers of the day to express his perspectives that were new to them. And some of them said that uh, he is, well, the specific terminology they use is found down here in, uh, let me see, where is it? Um, uh, why can't I find this? What is it? 18? Yes. What does this babbler want to say? And when we think of a babbler, we think of someone who is uh, uh, just verbalizing nonsense. But this meant more like a seed picker. And some of you probably have Bibles that put a little note to that effect in your Bible. He would take this and take this and take this and take this and take this from other philosophies and then try to bring something together. And they saw something completely different than what the Apostle Paul was actually presenting. And so they brought him to the Areopagus, Mars Hill, the place where the gods in their effigies had been mounted and the pillars were set up where the people would come and they would take a look at the physical manifestation of what they believed was their God and this would be the place where they would share their their beliefs. But in their strong desire to try to know who God is, they realized that in their own way of thinking, they might leave a gap, they might leave a hole. And so they tried to fill that gap by doing something that that just kind of was such a general statement that it was almost nonsensical. They put up this pillar to the unknown God. And Paul, looking at that, took advantage of it. And he said, he's the one that I am here to proclaim to you today. And from that point, Paul gives a synopsis of the qualities of God's being. And that's where we were finishing up last time we were together. So would you look with me as Paul begins to preach down there in verse 22, talks about him standing up at the, the Aragopas, the Mars Hill. He talks to them about men of Athens. Here's what I believe about you. You are all very religious people, but you don't know the truth. So I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to proclaim to you the unknown God. And then he begins, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. The very first thing that the Apostle Paul addresses for these people is the infinite power of God. Do you all understand that there is a God in heaven a God who was there before there was a heaven, a God who was all there was before anything came into being, that God 
spoke. And he created all that you see and all apart from himself that you don't see. He created the heavens. He created the earth. He created mankind. He created the angelic host. He created that which we can feel and see with our senses and that which to this point we still cannot see through the natural senses that we have. And he tells them, this is the God that I'm proclaiming to you. And let me tell you about him, this infinitely powerful God. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now, this is, this is a rather interesting expression in light of the fact that these people were all worshiping gods that they've tried to capture within their idolatry. Well, here is Paul reiterating what Solomon had said. Do you remember when Solomon was essentially designated to be the one who would make the temple, the place where God would manifest his presence. David was not allowed to because he was a man of blood. He was, he was a, a soldier who had been involved in, in great escapades, in great conflict, and God said, you are not the one to make the, the, the temple. But then his son, Solomon, did. And Solomon's perspective was this. How can I make a temple for God when even the heavens can't contain Him? Do you all understand that God transcends all of creation? We have scientists today who are trying to figure out the extent of the universe. And we kind of think we have this all together because we're, we're so intelligent and we have everything figured out. And even they are saying we believe that there is an end to the universe. So what lies beyond that end? What's out there? God. That's it. Isn't that interesting? God is where there is no place to be. And He fills it completely. And infinitely. Now, if you want to give yourself a headache, try to figure that out. Try to understand the extent of God. And we can't which, by the way, kind of gives me a great deal of confidence for what eternity holds because all that I can learn about God will never come to an end. There will always be more, and there will be more. And when I get to the end of the universe, quote-unquote, there will be more, and then there will be more. And all eternity will be filled with a revelation of who God is because that's what eternal life is, knowing God. Paul goes on, and he says in verse 25, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. Well, that's kind of the question. What does God need from us? And the answer is nothing. He is not in any way incomplete or unfulfilled without creation. He chose to create for his own purpose and for his own glory, but he does not need us for anything. That kind of puts us in our place, doesn't it? You know what? You, you go away for, for a few weeks and you come back and you just hear people say, Oh, Pastor, you have no idea how good Pastor Steve and Pastor Luke were. We really enjoyed them. When are they going to preach again? 
Have you ever thought about, well, no. (laughs) And you suddenly realize, I'm not needed. And and I'm not trying to say that in in some kind of a, a false humility. But the truth is, if the Lord didn't design it for me to be here and for you to be there, there's somebody else that could take our place very easily. He doesn't need us. That's why I'm firing Steve and Luke. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll tell you, it really, it it is a humbling issue when you realize that uh, the only reason I'm here is because God put me here. And, And you can say the same. And he has a plan and a purpose for us. And apart from the four spiritual laws, I recognize that we need him He does not need us. And so Paul helps these Athenians begin to understand this. Then he goes on and he says this in verse 26. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. Let's stop there. This is an insult Paul has just told those who perceive themselves to be superior to all other people that you are no better than anybody else. God has made of one all people. I had an opportunity last week uh, to teach in one of the the uh, Bible classes over at the high school. And these kids have great questions. I Man, I just love going over there and being in their classes just to let them start firing questions at you. And they will ask questions such as this. Where did the races come from? God created it. It? Yes. It is called the human race. I can share my blood with a person whose skin color is different from mine as they can with me. I can procreate with a person who is not of my cultural orientation. Why? Because there's one race, the human race. And though our skins are different in color, we are still one. And guess what? Nobody's better than anybody else. Nobody. And we need to understand that because there is still a mentality within this country that says, well, we're better than they. Well, No, you're not. You might think you are, but you're not. And uh, uh, maybe, maybe even within our own congregation, somebody might be offended to hear that. But you aren't any better than anybody else, no matter what your skin color, because you're made from the same human race as everybody else. Trace your lineage far enough back, and you're going to come to a terminus called Noah and his wife, and their children. 
And yes, God did divide the nations because men were not obedient to him, but they are still all of the same character and quality. They are humans. We were singing uh, one of the songs this morning that, that's really neat. It, it talked about how the Lord is going to bring people from every tribe and nation to fall at his feet and to worship him. That is really neat. If you ever get outside of our country, which my guess is most of you have that opportunity, you begin to find out that we have some wonderful brothers and sisters in other lands that would culturally be different from who and what we are to um, to realize that we have a bond in Christ that helps us understand that in the sacrifice of Christ, the sins of the white man and the sins of the yellow man and the sins of the black man and the sins of whatever other color there might be were placed upon the Savior. And He paid for those sins. And any man at any place at any time can trust Him as Savior on the same grounds. That might come as a shock not only to the Athenians, but maybe to some here today. Paul goes on and he says in the last half of that verse, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Oh, so yeah, there are individual pockets into which the Lord has placed people, and He's done it for a sovereign purpose. He does whatever He wills. I have some scripture that I wanted to share with you, but I don't want to belabor these things because they're very clear in these passages. But let me help you understand some of these uh, things that are, that are coming before us. When the Lord talks about man in this, uh, this realm of God's sovereign purpose, He says this in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 1. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. You know what that means? God's in charge. (laughs) That's the best way to put it. Shall we dress it up a little bit? No? Oh, okay. (laughs) I'm not needed. (laughs) I was going to use the word sovereign. Is that okay? Because we do want to understand what that word means. As the sovereign, he is in charge. He has complete freedom to do everything and anything he wants, except anything that is contrary to his nature. He will never make himself of anything less than what he is. Absolute perfection in every regard. And so here is this sovereign Lord who says, I'm going to work everything out according to my will. And you say, well, that makes me a robot. No, it doesn't. Does it mean that God will accomplish in you and through you what he ultimately desires? Yes. But you still have choices to make and options to 
consider and directions to go. And if you go the wrong direction, this God who is going to work out everything according to his purpose can even take that wrong direction, take the events that occur, the consequences that occur, and cause them to still fit into his program to to accomplish his purpose, and if necessary, spank us to bring us back on the road, or if we say, no, I'm still not going to accomplish the purpose that God has, then he says, okay, it's time to come home. Come on home. I don't want you to go any further. This is it. Sometimes we have the idea that things are out of God's control. Sometimes we get the idea that He is not sovereign and that He is reacting to us. Folks, I don't know who your God is, but He is not the God of the Bible. God is not reactionary. He is purposeful. And everything he does is designed for a purpose. And he has even predestined you to a particular goal. Do you know what that goal is? And this is, and, and I'm speaking to believers. To be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that's what we should be in the process of doing and becoming right now. I want Christ to be seen in me. I want his beauty to be seen in me. And that's not going to be a physical beauty. In fact, the Bible tells us there was no form or comeliness in him that we would desire him. He was not a good-looking man. But he had all of the attributes of glory within him, all of the love, all of the holiness, all of the righteousness, all of the goodness, all of the truth, all these qualities manifested in his being. And, and that is that to which we are predestined. And then that will be perfected. Not in this life, but when we see him. For when we see him, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. You're not going to be God, but you are going to have the qualities that Jesus Christ had all of those dimensions of the fruit of the Spirit that should be being developed in us right now. And our sovereign God's going to see that that gets taken care of. More. Wow, this is a great sermon. Do you know what makes this so great? Not only the quality of the things that he is saying, but the brevity in which he said them. Some of you, are you all here today? (laughs) All right, let's go on. Verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. We are totally dependent on him. Anything we are, anything we have, is because of Him. I enjoy freedom today because God has given me that freedom. He has used people to bring that about as part of His sovereign plan, but I have that freedom because He 
gave it to me. I have the ability to read. I've had teachers who taught. But God gave the ability to them to teach and gave me the ability to be able to retain enough information in this little pea brain that can recognize words and understand basically what they mean. And all of that I have from Him. You say, well, boy, you're really getting nitpicky. Well, so is the Bible. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. You may want to put this verse down. This is a good one to remember. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Do you get what he's saying? You're not that special. None of us are. Now what you did with what he gave you, you are going to have to give an account for. But you have everything you have because he gave it to you. So where should our boast be? In the Lord. He is worthy of all praise. He is worthy of all thanksgiving. I could give you some illustrations. They would take a little too much time. But all I can tell you folks is this. I am what I am because of the grace of God. End of story. End of story. Everything I am, everything I have is because of Him. And I better not forget that. Sermon's not over. Verse 36, For in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. That is not inspired, that statement. The recording of it is. But that statement was made by natural poets And Paul jumps on that, and he says this in verse 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, okay, we'll use what your poets have said, but let's be clear about what that means. We're the offspring of God, not in the sense that we are all children of God. Some people like to use the phrase, God is our Father and we are all His children, or uh, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. The only dimension of truth in that is that we were all created in the image and likeness of God and there has been a distortion of that image and likeness by virtue of our sin. But we are, in that regard, the offspring of God. That's what makes every human life so valuable. That's why why we believe abortion is wrong. Because the moment of conception, that child becomes a creation in the image and likeness of God. You say, you can't believe that. That little cell that's dividing down there and now, now it's taking on a little bit of form. You really believe that's human? Of course. Just as I believe the baby that's born, the moment of birth, is still human 
and then it changes and it grows and it's still human and it gets old and it gets decrepit and it starts to break down and it gets filled with disease and we don't take the life because God created it in His image and His likeness and He is the sovereign who has the right over life. And we are absolutely at His mercy to do with us what He wills. And I can tell you this, it will always be good. It may not always be fun, but it will always be good. Verse 29, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art, and man's devising. Here is the... I kind of gave it a word uh, myself. This this word will put your spell check into uh, a coma. The unrepresentability of God. What, what can give us an image of... Of God. Nothing. God's made it very clear. You cannot do anything to make an image that will represent me. We've had people actually come into this auditorium and look around and say, Where's the cross? Where's the cross? It's in the the book. The benefits of the cross are in here. How do I picture what Christ did for me at the cross? Oh, well, you need, you need that physical representation in order to worship God properly. Didn't he say just the opposite? Now, I'm not condemning. If you have a cross hanging up in your home, I, I don't believe that it's there because you need that to worship. I think that's more of a statement. I think that's more of a recognition I am a follower of Christ. It's kind of like people get all upset about tattoos today. Am I, am I going to cause a division in the congregation? Those of you who are opposed to tattoos, please go to this side of the auditorium. Those who are not, please go to this side. I believe that when the Lord spoke about the markings of the body as he did in the Old Testament, it was in relationship to worship of false gods. I don't believe that what we call body art today falls into that category. So if you have a tattoo, I don't believe you are in sin unless you got the tattoo because of some spiritual reason. But people have a tendency to put a, a cross or something on their arm or on their shoulder, something like that. I, God bless you. That's fine. That's fine. That's not what we're talking about here. I just want you to know... As you get older, you know, you probably get it when you're buff. And, and then you, you get older and, and one side of the cross begins to droop. <laughs> now it looks like an X. <laughs> What's the X on your arm? <laughs> uh, or sometimes people will get tattoos like all over their body. I can't imagine getting a tattoo on my belly. Can you imagine if <laughs> I w- that was a rhetorical question? You are not supposed to give an answer for that. But as my tummy grows, what happens to that tattoo? 
We cannot represent our God. Well, he goes on in the, the final dimension of this in this sermon is at the beginning of verse 30. Truly, these times, uh, these times of ignorance God overlooked. Okay, let's stop there. What does that mean? What Paul is talking about is the same thing that he records to the Romans. In fact, let me read this verse to you. Now, listen to this very carefully, because this is a very small phrase, but it's an extremely important phrase. In Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, Paul also, I believe, in the same realm, answered this same type of a question again. He said, whom God set forth as a propitiation, a satisfaction... By his blood, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith, the appropriation of those benefits of his shed blood, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, let's put this into a context. Maybe this isn't going to be a great explanation, but I think it's going to help us get on track. When Adam sinned, and when everybody else sinned all the way up to the time of Christ, there should have been death, which means when Adam sinned, nobody else would have come. But for some reason, God allowed those sins to be overlooked. The wages of sin is death. Death! How can God be righteous in overlooking these sins? And the answer is very simple. Because in God's sovereign plan, before the creation of the earth, before the foundations of the earth, Christ died for us and in the realm of history which god is not limited by he is not limited in time he is not limited in the unfolding of events he is the eternal present he knew that christ was coming and he is now righteous to extend mercy and grace through all the years because the one who would pay for sin came in the person of Christ and offered that sacrifice that took care of our sin so that God could be righteous in overlooking those sins until the sacrifice and now He can do something great on behalf of that. On our behalf, He can take the righteousness of Christ and appropriate it to our lives so that we stand before Him when we accept His sacrifice when we trust in what Christ did for us at the cross of Calvary, our sins are now forgiven. We are granted freely by God's grace the gift of eternal life, and He is just in doing that. He is righteous in doing that because everything hinges on Christ. I don't deserve eternal life. You don't deserve eternal life. But because of Jesus Christ, I have eternal life. I hope you do too. Because it's appropriated through faith. The benefits of that death. And so, he brings us to this point and now changes. He's saying, God is this. God is this. God is this. God is this. And then you come to the middle of verse 30 and it says, But now commands all men everywhere to repent. 
And he is going to draw a line in the sand that says this. All these things I've told you about God are very important for you to understand. But now we're going to find out how many of you are willing to accept what I have told you. You need to repent. What does repent mean? Oh, I'm going to name all my sins. I'm going to say so many Hail Marys. I'm going to take, crawl on my knees up the steps of a cathedral. I'm going to, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not going to eat dessert for Lent. To repent means to turn around. There are two things that are involved. My sin. I am an awful sinner because God told me I am and I turn away from that. And the Savior is over here. So while I'm in sin, I turn from sin to the Savior. I have done a 180 degree turn why because there I find life and it's all in the resurrection of Christ look at what it says because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained he has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. Do you believe that when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that God proved the acceptance of His sacrifice by raising Him from the dead? God says you need to believe that if you're going to have forgiveness in life. And you know what it did to the Athenians? That line in the sand said this, You stand on this side of the line and you don't have Christ, you're lost. The day of judgment is coming and you will be lost in spite of what Rob Bell says, forever. Forever. You step across that line and you embrace the resurrection of Christ. He is who he said he is. He gives you life. You know what happened with people? Same thing that happens in a place like this. When they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. (laughs) Some of you today, probably in your heart, might be mocking. Not saying that you are, but that would be a very natural reaction because it is not a natural thing to believe that the dead rise. But this isn't a natural thing. This is supernatural. Some mocked while others said, we will hear again on this matter. And some of you here, it may be that you have heard about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ a thousand times. And you'll say, well, I'll I'll listen again. I'll come back next week and I'll come back next week. Oh, don't you know I'm already a member of the church, but I'm still a little bit iffy on this. Well, somehow you snuck in. Verse 33, so Paul departed from among them. Verse 34 is great. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. They found the forgiveness in the life that only Christ can give. You ready to take some notes? 
you're afraid this is going to go into a third week, weren't you? Okay. What happens if you miss accepting the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Number one, you miss the knowledge of the true God. You cannot know God unless you know His Son. This is going to be really not bigoted. Um, I don't even know what word to put with this. Exclusive? Muslims do not know God. You will hear people say we worship the same God. We do not worship the same God. If you do not recognize Jesus Christ as the eternal God the Son, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father from all eternity, through all eternity, you do not know God. You miss the true and the living God if you do not accept what Jesus Christ did. The Mormons do not know the true God. The Jehovah's Witness do not know the true God. The Seventh-day Adventists do not know the true God. You say, Pastor, you're just firing away at people. Boy, that's terrible. Do you realize this is going to go out on the Internet and people are going to listen? They're going to come. They're going to burn the church down. Well, I hope not. I, I, I would hope that instead they would say, you know what? He's right. Because that's what the Bible teaches. Jesus Christ is God. And you can't know the Father without knowing the Son. The second principle. You miss the hope of forgiveness. I want you to listen to a a verse that makes this very, very clear. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, you and I are still in our sins. Third principle, the hope of justification. Romans 4.25, speaking of Christ who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. What does that mean? It means that God in righteousness saw our sin placed upon Christ, paid for completely, nothing to be added to to the benefit of what Christ accomplished for us at the cross. And he looks and says, when you come and accept the sacrifice of my son and trust him as your savior, I not only allow his death to have cared for your sin, but I give you his righteousness. In him, I stand before God having a righteousness equal to God's. Am I a perfect man? Be careful. Not from what you see, but do you know that God sees me that way? God looks at me and he says, Brian Wienroth, what a loser. I don't think he says that. But he is perfect because I see him in my son. And my son is perfect. Hallelujah. And finally, 
the hope of life. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You miss out on the coming life in the body. Okay, big problem today again. People are, are not, they're not thinking straight, they're not studying well, and they're not being taught well. What happens to us in eternity? Are we spirits that float around? No. Are we converted to angels with big wings on our back in spite of what some little person who says he saw heaven, who has no verification of that, I don't know what he saw, but he didn't see his grandpa with wings because Even if grandpa was saved, we don't become angels. Angels are a separate creation. And I'm glad I'm not an angel because they can't be redeemed. I can be. No, but I'm going to have a body in heaven, a resurrected body. I'm not going to be there floating around on some cloud. I'm going to be there in this transformed I asked the kids in, in the Bible class this week, I said, can you count the number of seeds in an apple? Yeah. Then I said, can you count the number of apples in a seed? God uses that illustration to describe our resurrection bodies. He says it's planted like a little seed. and You have no idea what it's going to be like, but I'm going to take from your body Maybe a cell. Maybe a flake of dust. Be careful in your homes. You may be shoving great-grandma right off the piano. (laughs) But the day is coming when we're going to get a body. I really do want you to understand that because some people are really confused about that. We are going to be in bodies. And we will be learning about the Lord for all eternity. What do you miss if you don't trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You miss knowing God. You miss forgiveness. You miss being justified. You miss life everlasting in a resurrected body. Now the question is, what have you done with Jesus? If you believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, the Bible says you're saved. With the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You may have been here for 30 years, and all I'm asking you to do is examine yourself and find out if you've really trusted Christ. And if you haven't, you need to. You need to. Let's stand. Father, what a privilege it is to handle your word. What a privilege it is to give a message of hope and a message of life. And I thank you for what you've done in the person of Jesus Christ. 
I pray, Father, that as we go from here today, everyone, without exception, would personally possess the eternal life that only Jesus can give through faith in Him. Only you can draw sinners to yourself. And no man will come unless you draw him. And so, Father, I'm asking you to do that through the power of your Spirit and the power of your Word. Bring life for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.